today leading up to Christmas called The Gospel According to Isaiah. Gospel According to Isaiah. And some of you are sitting there thinking, I didn't actually know that Isaiah had written a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Oh, interesting. And others of you will not be that familiar with the book of Isaiah at all. Because the book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament and it is very long. It is 66 chapters. And when I'm talking about chapters, I'm talking about big chapters. I'm not talking about small chapters. It's th- they're massive. And so um, I really think that the book of Isaiah stands as the centerpiece of the Old Testament. And I suspect Isaiah might be one of the great hidden treasures of our Bibles today. And it's not that we don't know of its existence. For many of us, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm aware that Isaiah's there. Um, but we might not appreciate its worth. And so if I'm really honest, still finding that out for myself. So I remember 20 years ago when I studied theology, one of my modules was on the book of Isaiah. And it was epic. It was big. And I just remember being at that moment utterly amazed by the, the portrait of Jesus that it portrays. This is a book... And what is so important about this is this is a book that was written 600 years before Jesus came to the earth. So we're talking about a book written 2,700 years ago. And but throughout this book, we see this picture of Jesus. And there's these prophecies, this prophetic word after prophetic word about who this Messiah was going to be, this servant king, as it talks about. And To be honest, though, as you read this book and as you engage with this book, there are some barriers that you'll come across. Um, It's largely written in the genre of Hebrew poetry, and it handles some pretty weighty themes. Uh, Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And if if I was to give you an overview of what's even the book about, that would be the most helpful thing. Uh, uh, Right over the top of it would be the Lord saves. And... The core themes of Isaiah are themes such as judgment and redemption, or judgment and hope. And another way of looking at it, and something that I found helpful as I was just preparing our talk for this morning, is to be darkness and light. Throughout this book, we see darkness and light. Now, a a little bit of a context is that God is pretty hacked off with his people. That they have turned away, they've worshipped other gods, that it uses some of the language of kind of wickedness. And, you, you know, it's like society, it's all gone to pot. It's not looking good at that moment. And so Isaiah is a prophetic book. Isaiah is a prophet. And he's been sent into this context of, you, you might use the analogy of darkness again. It is a really difficult context to call the nation back to God. And so Isaiah has got a really tough job on his hands. He's like, Turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. But also, if you don't, there are, there are going to be consequences of you moving away from God. These are the things that are going to happen if you don't turn back to God. God, And so one of the themes throughout this is that God is going to punish his people, but then he's also going to rescue them. So we've got punishment and rescue going through. So Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. And do you know what? I think that's a really apt name. I think it's really helpful because it's using the New Testament's use of the word gospel is largely rooted in the book of Isaiah. So that's why I think, you know, this idea of the fifth gospel. And what, what is this idea of gospel? It's, it's the good news. That it's good news that although God's people have messed up royally, 
that although they've turned away from him, although they've turned his back, their backs on him, and they rightly deserve judgment, that God will come as their king and that he will bring peace and salvation to all who trust in him. So that's the overarching story. Through passage after passage after passage, Isaiah tells us of this coming servant king who's going to rescue his people and be a light to the world. Now, nowadays, sometimes within kind of Christian churches, we're used to this concept of a servant king. We're like, well, of course those two words go together. But actually, if you go back thinking, when they were talking about king in the Old Testament, they would have been thinking about an all-powerful king that would come in and crush everybody. And so this concept of having a servant king, a king that would come and serve the people, that would die for the people, was absolutely at odds. So they would have been reading it going, wow, this is a completely unique idea, servant king. And so what I'm saying is, and why I was so amazed when I started reading this book 20 years ago, is that the book just shows us Jesus. Picture after picture after picture after picture of Jesus. And the book of Isaiah has this forward tilt to it. So it points us to the coming of Jesus Christ and the glorious future that he opens up for us as well. He shows us that the gospel isn't just about personal forgiveness, although that is really important. It's also about cosmic renewal. It's so much bigger than the individual because often we love to take the gospel and we bring it down to us individually. It's about me. It's about you. Yes, that's true. But what it's doing in this whole, throughout this whole book is saying it's so much bigger than you. This is about the restoration of all things. This is a picture of what God wants to do. And God will not only redeem humanity, but he's also going to restore the world. There will one day be a new creation with no more sorrow, pain, sickness, or death. I love that picture. It's a picture that I come back to again and again of like, oh, Lord, this, this world is tough, isn't it? There is so much brokenness. You turn on the news. I don't know about you, and I just feel utterly depressed sometimes. It's like... God, what are we supposed to do in the middle of this? But actually what we have in the book of Isaiah is we read about this radiant future that the Lord is going to bring. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's that it's not going to stay like this. We live in, in between times where Jesus has come back, but we, we're not seeing the fullness. And we won't until one day when we have the whole new creation. It gives a picture that it will be like a jubilant wedding feast where people from every nation will swallow up a feast of rich food. And then it goes on to say, and the Lord will swallow up death forever. The Lord will swallow up for death forever. This is a moment where we need to be a Pentecostal church. <laughs> We're never going to be. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you're like, swallow up death. That's the picture, isn't it? It's like, wow, that excites me. Our future is a joyful feast in God's presence. Isaiah is also uniquely suited to help us get our bearings on the whole Bible. Sometimes we read the whole Bible. We read bits of the Bible. We take bits out. And I want you to imagine a mountain range like this. These are like the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus numbers as you're going through. Bang, you've got this huge mountain in the middle. It's the book of Isaiah. And then it goes on like this. And so what happens is, is you begin to climb the mountain of Isaiah because it is, that's why I'm saying it's the centerpiece of the Old Testament. You climb up it. It gives you this amazing view back through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then it gives you this amazing view on into the future. So it looks back and it looks forwards. And um, just to give you a few ideas of that, it looks backward to the first Exodus. So the book of Exodus, and then it looks forward to a new Exodus. It looks backwards to the first creation in Genesis. It looks forward to a new creation. It looks backwards to the first Jerusalem, and then forwards to a new Jerusalem. It looks back 
was to the first Davidic king. And then it's looking forward to this next Davidic king in the line of David. We're again, we're talking about Jesus 600 years on. It's the next Davidic king. So all the time. So just imagine yourself up on this mountain looking back and looking forwards. And that's what Isaiah helps you to do. Several hundred years later, Jesus arrived to bring Isaiah's promises to fulfillment. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 40 times, and it alludes to it countless others. And scratch any page of the New Testament, you know, when you're like, and underneath it, what will you find? You will find Isaiah. You will find the book of Isaiah. So over the next three weeks, we've decided to break it down into 22 chapters a week. The 66 chapters, I've got three weeks. It worked very simply for me. So get your Bibles out. We're going to read 22 chapters. Decided that wouldn't be the best idea. It's the one way to shrink a church very, very quickly. And so instead, what we decided to do is look at the book of Isaiah through Jesus. And to look at three prophetic passages that talk about Jesus. That you'll even look there and go, this is incredible. Was this really written before Jesus came? And you'll go, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about the Savior of the world. This is why we read these, these passages at Christmas time. And But before I move on, I want to give you an analogy, another analogy. The two analogies are the centerpiece, this mountain that you stand on and you look back and forwards. The other one that I want to give you is of potholing. Who's been potholing? Sucks, doesn't it? I went potholing <laughs> 27 years ago, and I'm still traumatized. 27 years ago, I went to North Wales, and oh, I could do with some prayer at the end. This is almost like a therapy session for me. I haven't been since. There were three caves that we needed to go into, and the first was called the Squeeze. I should have known. What a stupid title. Anyway, I happened to be following somebody slightly larger through the Squeeze. Said person, unfortunately had a horrible time in this cave. But can you imagine trying to go backwards through a cave, where, which is a squeeze? I was in this cave for far too long. And that feeling of claustrophobia, I mean, some of you are literally going to have night terrors tonight. You're like, James, don't take me into the darkness. So that was the first one, the squeeze. The second one, they took us into this cave, and it's freezing cold water. And you had to get from one cave to another, and so you had to swim underneath. I was 12. How could they do this to me? It was awful. But anybody that's been potholing, anybody that's been into a cave knows that the further you go into a cave, the darker it gets. And literally, it's this overwhelming, slightly oppressive feeling of, I have never felt darkness like this. It's also it's the opposite of when you go into the countryside and you look up and you see the stars. You're like, wow, look at the light from heavens. But that is a picture of the caving. This is a picture of what we find ourselves in in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. It's dark. It is so dark. They are in the back of the cave. That's what it feels like. It is oppressive. It is gloomy. And they need the light. So we're going to put it up in chapter 9, verses 1 through to 7. So if you've got a Bible, follow along with me. If not, it's going to come up on the screens. I am going to, so some of you will go through the first five verses and go, I have no idea what this is talking about. And then suddenly you'll hit six and seven and be like, I've heard this. But it is a tough passage. Do not worry. I am going to help you with it. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the, 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Again, keep your eyes on this potholing analogy. They're in the darkness. They've seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be full for the fire. This is the bit. For unto us a child is born. Handel's Messiah ringing through some of you right now. For unto us. I'm not going to sing. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's an amazing passage. This is talking about Jesus. To set the context of Isaiah 9, we find in the beginning back in the chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah is writing about the terrible leadership over Judah. Terrible leadership. The idolatry of all the people that they're following other gods. And this is leading to greater and greater desperation and more and more gloom and darkness over the land. It is depressing. It's a really depressing picture, which is sometimes why we read a few chapters and we're like, oh, I'm done. There's the highlight of chapter 6, which will some of you will know, in the year that King Uzziah died. And then it goes on, and whom will go for me, and whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. An amazing passage. We don't read the back half of that chapter that then goes on to talk about, and you will go to a people that will never listen to you. They're not going to listen to you. That is the context in which Isaiah is prophesying. This people are not going to listen to you, but I, you are called to proclaim the Lord's word. But then, in verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The darkness cannot and will not win. That is so important. The darkness does not win. On every day when we wake up and we're like, man, it feels dark. It does not win. One thing that we discover about God in the Bible, and if you don't know very much about God, or you're new to reading the Bible, there's one thing that we discover about God in the Bible, and we find it everywhere. Our God is a God who rescues. He rescues time and time again. Whenever he sees somebody sitting in a dark place, whenever he finds people whose lives are in desperation and gloom, he devises a plan to rescue them. And this is amazing passage in Ephesians, which is a beautiful book in Ephesians 2. And it's just this little phrase, and it says, but God. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive with Jesus Christ even when we were dead in our sin, even when we'd gone so far away from him. It is by grace that you have been saved. But God, because of the God of the Bible, the God whose son's birth we celebrate at Christmas, because God is a God who doesn't ever say to people, you made your bed, now lie in it. He never says that. He never says, you knew what I wanted, but you walked in the opposite direction. He doesn't leave us there. There is through the whole of Scripture this amazing word and this amazing concept, and it's called redemptive hope. 
redemptive hope is just this idea that we are moving towards light. So no matter, so that this is this is a bit in the scripture where they're so far in the back of the cave, but then there's this picture: those walking in darkness are going to see a great light, and so they are walking towards the front of the cave. And it's that moment when you suddenly realise that the darkness isn't as oppressive, and the light begins to come. And then these kind of shafts of light begin to come in. And this is the picture. This is what it's feeling like. We then hit chapter 40 of Isaiah. And suddenly the whole thing changes. It's like, it's talking about the future. It's talking about hope. He doesn't leave us there. There's redemptive hope. It might look very dark, but God always gives us the hope of rescue. We can always hope for the rescue of ourselves and of somebody that we love. There is always this triumphant phrase, but God, but God. Until we breathe our last breath, there is always held out for human beings an open invitation of grace. But God, if you want to know one thing about God from the Bible, God is always at work devising a rescue plan for his people. Always. God saw the darkness again and again and again in Scripture. He devised rescue operations to pull people out of the darkness. You pulled me out of the slimy pit, it talks about in the Psalms, doesn't it? This slimy pit, I was down here and you pulled me out. You did not leave me there. It's redemptive hope. And he hasn't changed. The culture that we're living in, we feel this darkness. There is a darkness over it. You could see there's a darkness over it. But God doesn't leave us there. It's not like, well, you make your bed and lie in it. There's always, there's always this picture of the Luke 15 of the, of the father with his outstretched arms. He's gone off. He's squandered himself. He's spent all that he has. He's with the pigs. And what does the father do? And this is the picture for every single one of us and the culture out there that the Lord is there with his arms open wide. He's the father. He says, come home. Come home. I love you. There's nothing that you can do. There is nowhere that you can go that is too far. The darkness will never win. Not only in your life, but in the lives of people. Whatever desperate situation you're in, even situations of our own making, perhaps we've been stupid and we've just done what shouldn't have been done. We've hooked our lives onto the wrong person or we've become addicted or we've rejected counsel from wise people and gone ahead. Even though we've been warned and they, you know, we've gone to them and said, what do you think we should do? And they're like, don't, whatever you do, don't do that. And we've gone and done it anyway. And it's resulted in complete disaster. The one thing that you must know and believe about God is that God always has his arms out. It is by grace that you have been saved. Grace is the great equalizer. Because none of us stand here looking down on anybody else. We talked about grace-filled community. We don't get to do that. Because I've been saved by grace. It's his glorious grace for me. So as the leader of this people I don't stand here and it's like oh I've got it all together you guys suck come on it's like no I hopefully I'm just aware of the Lord's amazing grace for me and that out of that place we minister to everybody else because we're like it's by grace that we've been saved do you believe this do you believe that God wants to rescue you do you believe that he wants to bless your life he always He is for us. Our God is good. Our God is for us, not against us. Do you believe that God wants to rescue and bless people around the world who's seated in darkness? Do you believe that God is a rescuing God and a God committed to doing good? God is constantly strategizing, constantly scheming in his infinite wisdom, constantly figuring out ways for you and me and the rest of the world to turn fully back to him so that we can be healed and blessed. Coming back to... Verse 1. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zeppelin and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he'll honor the Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond, beyond the Jordan. There's two things that are really important about this. He talks about humbling and he talks about honoring. This was the kind of place, and I'm not going to put a name because I don't like putting names, but if you were to put it in Wales, think of a really downtrodden area. Do you know what I mean? That it's almost like it's lost hope. This is, Nap- th- this is the area that it's talking about. This is Galilee. This was a place that was looked down on and despised and humbled. It was a humble, humble place. And it's saying, despite the fact that this place has been humbled, I am going to make this into my jewel. This is going to become absolutely precious. Do you know how God does this? Where does Jesus come? Where did Jesus come from? Galilee. It's saying that the place of the greatest humility, humble, is going to be the place of the greatest honor because Jesus is going to come from Galilee. Again, prophetic word. That's where he's from. It's amazing. 600 years, and I have to keep emphasizing this is written 600 years before Christ. From being humbled to honor, God uses the weak things of this world to shame the wise. How does God rescue? Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Notice the initiative again comes from God. People seated in darkness don't produce their own light. They aren't responsible for the light. Instead, totally apart from us, totally apart from anything we can do, light appears. Light is always a gift of God. It's not something that we conjure up within ourselves. It's by grace. This is the light that is given to us. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The light is given. This is what happened with Jesus. He was given. And then goes on to say that God beats the odds. What's verse 4 about? You might have read verse 4 and be like, I don't know. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. It's about the story of Gideon. It's all about Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon? Some of you will, some of you won't. Gideon needed an army. So what he did is he tried to recruit as many people as, as he could. And then the Lord said, basically, you don't need that many people. And then he stripped them down to the point where it was like, okay, I'm going to give a little test for how they drink water. Are they going to cup it or are they going to lap it? And so suddenly Gideon's left with 300. The army that he's created, goes, oh, you, don't need, you don't need that many. You only need this. Gideon had 300 men and he faced an enemy of tens of thousands in the Midianites. The story of Gideon is the story of hope in God alone. When there is no human reason why you should win, there's absolutely no reason in the world why something should work out. God can beat all of the odds, that God can defeat any enemy, no matter big how big they are. That's what it's talking about. It's just referring back to this story of Gideon. God does work miracles, miracles of healing, miracles of rescue, miracles of restoration. If you want to regain hope, if you're in a dark place, start reading and meditating on this book. The whole Bible breathes with the message of hope. It says, remember what God has done. In fact, in Genesis, the story of Abraham is a story of hope for children when childbearing is medically impossible. The story of Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, there's a story of hope for us when the family we grew up in is radically dysfunctional. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, it doesn't matter what your family was like, how screwed up they were, there's hope for you. That's what the story is about. The story of Samson in the book of Judges is a story of hope when we've wasted our potential and become a tragedy. The story of the Apostle Peter in the New Testament is the story of hope when we've blown it. You have to remember that this was the person that denied Jesus three times. And I know that we sit there, but can you imagine waking up, the cock crows, and suddenly it's like, I have denied Jesus three times. On this rock I will build my church. 
the story of Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, they're all female ancestors of Jesus Christ, prostitutes and adulteresses. It doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are, God's grace can triumph. The story of the resurrection is the ultimate story of hope. Here is Jesus mocked, stripped, beaten, spikes put into his hands and his feet, and he's gasping for air. There's a spear thrust into his side. Here is Jesus, dead, buried, and after three days, gloriously alive. The story of the resurrection is the story of hope, even in the face of death. It is the ultimate story of hope. It is the story that we have to keep coming back to. Why do we do communion? So that we can remember. And it's not just about the death. It's about the resurrection, that we are a resurrection people, that we stand in hope. And it's not Jesus died. Yes, mega important, but he rose again. What does that mean? That there's a power in the resurrection. There's a resurrection power that is available to us because he defeated death. God can beat the odds. And then finally, God sends his son into the darkness. Isaiah 9 verse 6, for unto us a child is born, Jesus Unto us a son is given, Jesus, and the government will be on his shoulders, it's Jesus. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, it's Jesus. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end, it is Jesus. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He's from the line of David. Jesus is from the line of David, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, it is Jesus. Can you see? I don't know about you, But this is pretty convincing when I'm talking about faith. This is the kind of prophetic word that you can build your life on. That's what we see through the book of Isaiah. It's one of those children's quizzes at church where the answer is always Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This means that the darkness or the evil has has and never will overcome or extinguish God's light. There are people all over the world sitting in darkness. Many of us might find ourselves in a place of darkness. But God, in his infinite love and grace, wants to bring light into the dark places. He doesn't want to leave us in the back of the cave. He says, come right out. I am the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand in order that it can give light. That is the picture of Jesus, the light of the world that we're talking about. The miracle-working God that we serve wants to give hope for those of us who are in darkness. And our God grants astonishing wisdom and awesome revelation for any of us who seek him for light in the place of darkness. One of the songs that we sing is this. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. It's all about the magnificence of Jesus. I'm humbled by it. And I hope you are. Why don't you stand?